Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And folks, my plan was to present part two of the founding of General Motors for today. I was going to do a full episode about that, and I'm still working on it. But my neighborhood has been hit with some outages in internet service. Uh, Quite a few of them, unfortunately, that has really impaired my ability to continue my research and dive in and be able to frame out that episode. But I don't want to leave you guys without an episode to listen to. And at the same time, I can't really record something new unless I'm just speaking off the cuff. And let's be honest, none of us want that. So instead... I thought I would bring to you a classic episode. This is actually called the Antikythera Update episode, but there's an update to the update that I will talk about once this episode plays through. This was a very special episode where Joe McCormick, who is now one of the co-hosts of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, joined me for the show, and we talked about this remarkable device from the Greeks of old that was discovered in the early 20th century and what we had learned from it up to that point. But as you will hear when we get to the end, we've learned a little bit more. So let's listen to this classic episode and I'll chat with you some more at the end of the episode. On forward thinking, we usually talk about the future in one way or another. Mm -hmm. And um, so I wanted to go in completely the opposite direction and talk about the technology of the past. Oh, okay. And I started thinking, hmm, I wonder what's the oldest computer that we know about. Oh, I gotcha. So we're talking 1946 with ENIAC, right? That computer that you would end up programming with lots of plugs and switches. Not at all. Wow. No. So wait, are you you're saying it's older than that? Older. Okay, all right, well, fine. How about the 1942, that's the uh, Atanasoff Berry computer, or ABC, which was built at Iowa State College, which is now a university, obviously. But uh, it was uh, the, there was a patent dispute, actually, that was uh, decided in the United States government about whether ENIAC or the ABC computer were first, and ultimately they said that it uh, you could not have anyone to claim uh, they were the ones to invent the computer. That's the first one, right? ABC computer. no. Okay. All right. 1941. We're starting to get a little fuzzy here, but all right. So Conrad Zeus builds the Z3 computer. And that was also the, the same year when the first Bomba was built. You know, one of the, the devices meant to help decrypt German uh, messages. That's it, right? 1941. No. All right. 1939. George Stibitz completes the complex number calculator, the CNC at Bell Telephone Laboratories. We just finished talking about Bell Labs. This has got to be it. And even in the first demonstration, he used teletype so that he could program this remotely over special telephone lines. So it was the first remote computer as well. So that's it, right? I think you need to think less electricity. Fine. Fine. 1837. The analytical engine, Charles Babbage, he designs this, never finishes it in his lifetime. But of course, that is the device that Ada Lovelace, the enchantress of numbers, had possibly even created computer uh, programs for algorithms where she envisioned a time where you could encode things like music and poetry into mathematics. That's it. The the analytical engine. Okay, so we're going to talk about that. No, you're you're about. 2,000 years off. Say what? (laughs) (laughs) No, not about. Almost. About 1,800 years off. Okay. So what are you talking about? I am talking about something that is called the Antikith... Antikith... Oh, we're going to have this problem the whole time. Antikythera mechanism. No, the Antikythera mechanism. Yes, the Antikythera mechanism. Also known as the Antikythera mechanism. Yeah, yeah, it all depends on which pronunciation you follow. Antikythera seems to be fairly commonplace, so we're going to go ahead and use that one and probably switch off without even thinking about it. All right, I know a little bit about this, but um, I guess before we talk about this mechanism, maybe we need to say what the heck is Antikythera. For anyone who is not familiar with the uh, the geography of Greece, you may not know this. This refers to a place. Yeah, it's an island in the Mediterranean Sea, and if you um, if you imagine you're looking at the Mediterranean, it's this small island that's between Crete to the south mm-hmm. and the Peloponnesian Peninsula up to the north. So the mainland of Greece, and it's right there in the middle. 
Um, there's a bigger island just called Kithara, and this is a smaller one offset from it called Antikythera. So if Antikythera and Kithara were to collide, would, it would just destroy one another. Yeah, yeah. total positronic reversal. Annihilation, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tell them about the Twinkie. So, uh, you know, joking aside, does that mean that this is where that mechanism was, was made? Um, no, probably not. This is where the mechanism was discovered. Oh, okay. And that's how it got its name. Gotcha. So someone was walking around Antikythera one day, and they stubbed their toe and said, oh, what's this? And found the world's oldest computer. No, it's much creepier. Oh? Um, well, okay, so the story goes like this. Around the year 1900, there was a group of sponge divers who right. were uh, off the coast of Antikythera, and they were doing their diving, I guess, yep. whatever sponge divers do. They were gathering sponges. Gathering sponges yeah. to wash all their dishes. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, so they were doing their thing. But apparently one of the divers came up to the surface and he was like, uh, guys, there are dead women lying <laughs> all over the bottom of the ocean. There's a bunch of naked dead ladies at the bottom of the ocean. Yeah. Uh, Sounds creepy, but Elias actually... Elias Stadiatos. Yeah, yeah. Actually, what he was seeing were statues. There yes. were bronze and marble statues that were part of the payload of a almost, well, I guess about exactly two, 2,000 year, year old ship wreck yeah. of a ship yeah. that was a Roman ship, a large Roman ship carrying a lot of cargo, much of it probably stolen or looted cargo. Right. We're talking at an era just around the time when the Romans were beginning to, uh, let's say, incorporate the Hellenistic societies into their empire <laughs> by <Yeah>. force. <laughs> um, so it, it had all these Greek artifacts on yeah. it. Yeah, and luxury items, like really expensive stuff in the Greek world. Uh, yeah, and so the idea is we don't know exactly what the ship was doing, but we think it was probably a ship that was returning to Rome from some destination uh, in, in the Greek world. Yeah, and so there are a lot of these Greek artifacts, including currency, uh, they had, uh, like you said, statues. They had uh, lots of pottery, um, and they had this this device, it's, it, which was uh, well. You know, at first, it was just a lump, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, at first, well, and of course, it didn't get that much attention early on because there was so much other stuff down there in that shipwreck, right? So, the people who went in to really uh, investigate the shipwreck and take a look and see what was going on. They didn't necessarily realize that there was something truly special, something that was beyond just uh, uh, special from an artistic merit point of view, but could tell us a lot about how much the ancient Greeks knew about craftsmanship, about astronomy, about math. All of these things would become apparent, but only a hundred years later. Right. So after the explore. So so it's it's forgotten for 2000 years, essentially. And then for another hundred years, we don't really know what it is. So it's kind of this lump of corroded bronze in inside what what used to be a wooden box that essentially disintegrated. Yeah. Th- so there's like there's one big remaining lump. Yeah. But there are about 82 fragments in total. Right. Right. So one of those fragments, the main fragment, has mm-hmm. the vast majority of the what we know of as the the inner workings of whatever this device was supposed to be. And we know a lot more about it now, but don't want to ruin the surprise. No. Uh, but so basically we can say like what it was made of. So what they think now is, OK, this looks like it was some kind of collection of bronze gears yeah. inside of a wooden casing. Yeah. In fact, at first they thought it might only be just one gear that somehow was loose from something else. And then they realized, no, there's actually several no. gears here, but it's all corroded together. Yeah. It's, it's sort of like uh, fused into a big bottom of the ocean snot ball. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, that's very accurate. <laughs> um, but so it, if you can imagine, uh, I would call it like, uh, imagine a mid-sized dictionary. Okay. Not like a pocket dictionary, but also not that huge one from the library that you couldn't steal. It's on a pedestal, tried, yeah. Right? Uh, like, a, like a large hardback dictionary. Right. Um, and it's uh, got a wooden casing, so you could open that casing up, and then inside you've got this corroded mass that uh, that is all this gear formation. Now, of mm-hmm. course, the wooden casing doesn't really remain except in rotted fragmentary right, form. Right. Um, but that's the basic mechanism we're dealing with. And if you start to look at it, you would see this one big gear. Um, but 
you might wonder, what does this thing do? Yeah, and beyond that, I mean, before we even get to that, like, how old is this thing? Oh, yeah. Because, I mean, well, we, we figure that the shipwreck happened sometime around 85 BCE, before Common Eras, because mostly because of the dates that we found and I say we, but the explorers found on the <laughs> you currency. And I found. Yeah, you know, sometimes Joe and I we get we get tired of working on stuff for forward thinking. We pop out to the Greek islands and then just go well uh, skin diving. Amateur archaeology. Yeah, it's, you know, and uh, X by the way does mark the spot. No, but we they, by dating things like the currency, they have sort of narrowed the range to around. 85 BCE, but that that doesn't necessarily mean that's how old the device is. No, they think that the device is older than the wreck, so yep. it wasn't built like right before. Uh, the, it's generally dated between 100 and 150 BCE, so yep. it's thought of as a second century BCE device. Right, so so it is an ancient device. Uh, that seems to be about how old it is. Uh, we've got some ideas of where it may have come from. Uh, there were some. There we don't some, know for sure. No, but. we don't. We don't have any. It, the uh, instruction manual for this device was not anywhere to be found. Uh, it was not on the glove compartment of this shipwreck. <laughs> so we can't be absolutely certain. Uh, there's some speculation that maybe it was the Island of Rhodes, which was known for uh, its scholarship. And also its craftsmanship, but there are some other options as well that we can talk about. Uh, but beyond that, um, you know, we've talked about what it was made of. We talked about how old it was. But yeah, what what did this thing do? And at first, it was a real mystery. In fact, for like we said, like a century, it was a mystery. We just didn't have enough information to be able to determine. We had some yeah there wild were, guesses. There were people who made some good guesses, yeah. but they didn't know the full extent yet. Um, and they. they they didn't realize initially how awesome this thing was. Right. You know, we can make an argument that this is the oldest computer, which obviously means that it has to do more than just have some inner work, inner working gears that move smoothly. It has to do something beyond that, because otherwise anything that was reliant on gears and clockwork, you could call a computer. But we'll get into exactly what it is that this thing did that kind of makes us consider it more of a computer device, an analog computer than some sort of interesting clockwork, right? So, um, but in general, what we understand it to have been able to do, and in fact, we understand a lot more about it in very recent years than we had for the century leading up to it. Oh, well, I'd say now we've basically had a slam dunk yeah, on this one. Right. And recent recent revelations have shown us, oh, this is pretty much exactly what it did. Yeah, which is yeah. phenomenal when you think of how badly in repair this thing was. Yeah. But but ultimately what it does is it's it's a device that not only tracks celestial events and the movement of celestial bodies in relation to uh, our perspective here on Earth, it also predicts them. So yeah. in other words, you not only can you uh, can you keep track of what's going on and it could give you an indication of where you would need to look in the sky if you wanted to see something like Mars. Uh, it also would tell you that, oh, on this particular date, you will have a full solar eclipse. It's uh, kind of cool. Yeah. In other words, an astronomical calculator. Yes. Um, it, and so what it would do is it would have <clears throat> a position of the Earth. Right. And then... Um, by moving the hand crank on which, it, which no longer exists. Yeah, but that's that's we figure it was a hand crank that uh that provided the the uh, kinetic energy to make yeah. everything turn. Uh, by by moving that, you could see at the same time, based on a projected date in the future, the positions of the sun, of the moon, um, probably of the planets. We don't know the planet gears are missing. Right. Now. Yeah, probably the, at least the planets that the Greeks knew about, which included the <laughs> probably not the planets yeah, that didn't probably know about. not those. Not planet I mean, X. We, we don't think. Well, not Neptune, Uranus, or, or if you want to be kind, Pluto. Uh, they they <laughs> they had identified as far out as Saturn. Yeah. Uh, now, if in fact we were to d find evidence that it included these other uh, planets as well, that as far as we know they didn't know about, then uh, that would make the third part of our conversation yeah. get a little more interesting. It also had, yeah, as you said, an eclipse prediction dial, uh, and that's really cool. Uh, and it also predicted cultural events. So yeah, that's like, true. Like the Olympiad. Right, because you had a schedule of when that would take place. And so by plotting it against this uh, device and actually inscribing it on the device, you could uh, factor that in. You could see what the what the celestial events were going to be at a planned future event that way which is 
kind of handy. Um, but we'll talk specifically. We need to really get into the nitty gritty of how this is possible. And then we'll conclude at the end talking about how we know all of this stuff, because as you're going to learn, it's really complicated to figure out how a device works if you can't actually visualize all the gears when you first get hold of it. Joe and I will have more to say about the Antikythera mechanism in just a moment, but first let's take a quick break. All right, we're back. So let's talk about how this device actually tracked celestial events. Okay, so we we know there are all these gears. There's a hand crank you turn. It moves things forward so that you can uh, look at what the celestial conditions are on any given date. Or you can even uh, advance it so that you can look for a specific celestial event. Let's say you're looking specifically for when is the next eclipse going to occur. So you're not looking to see what the celestial, uh, what the sky is going to look like um, three months from now. You just want to know when the next eclipse is. You could advance the handle from your date and keep doing it until you saw the eclipse uh, information come up and then compare that, see what the date is on the other part of the, the indicator. And we'll talk about all the yeah. different dials. This would be indicated by a dial. Yes. So it's like a, it's like an analog clock face. Yeah. It would be spinning around a point to let you know when this is coming. Exactly. And then you could say, oh, all right. So the next eclipse is in, you know, you know, three months and two weeks from now or whatever. And, uh, so there's a lot of different ways you could use this. Well, um, there were about, 30, 31 gears that we know of, probably at, at, least, at least 30 gears. Yeah, at um, least more or at least 30, probably more. Rather. Though it's, I think, hypothesized that there were more to deal with the movement of the planets. Yep. Mm-hmm. That are, that's just lost. And, you know, it's not a surprise because, again, like I said, when we call it bad repair, I mean, you're you think about this. This is like <laughs> essentially the imagine a clock that's been fused into one piece. I mean, an old style gear clock fused into one piece. That's kind of. And it's it's opaque, so you can't see these gears that are on the inside just with the naked eye. Uh, but we'll get into how we figured more about this in a little bit. But so you had all these different dials that would mark different events uh, and different time spans, right? So you would have a dial that would be set up for uh, for just regular keeping of of a calendar year, but there were also dials that were more attuned to specific celestial cycles. So, for example, there might be a 19-year cycle that's represented by one dial. Another one had, a, a, I think, a 75-year dial. And these dials were to refer to things that, uh, patterns that would repeat once you hit those time frames. So, like, every 19 years, this one set of patterns would repeat itself. So, that's why they have these different dials to indicate exactly what's happening at exactly what time. Uh, the, what I loved was the idea that there was one gear specifically devoted to showing the phase of the moon. Mm-hmm. So not only would you see the position of the moon on any given date, but you would also see what phase it was in, whether it was waxing or waning, a new moon, full moon, whatever. And, and uh, I really thought that was very clever. So, yeah, you would essentially either either refer to the dates and look at the celestial events to compare the two, or you would set it so that you would look at a specific configuration of the celestial body and then look at what date corresponded to it. It's um, kind of amazing to imagine the complex planning and craftsmanship that went into a machine like this. Right. Because um, when you start thinking about it, Okay, say somebody set you down and told you to try to build something like this, and and you had, you know, it was open book test. You, you knew what time frame all these celestial events would occur in. How would you do it? Yeah, I mean, God, you. <laughs> so you, yeah, you would have to figure out the relationships between the sizes of gears, right? Um, and the way they would interlock to create fractional relationships yes. um, between uh, the movements of all the different bodies at the same time. And keep in mind that if this thing's reflecting, say, planets and stuff like that, well, from a geocentric point of view, mm-hmm. the movement of the planets is not just a simple circle. Right. I mean, you see them, they, they process and then they go backwards. Right. And the and machine has to has reflect to count all of yeah, these things. Yeah, exactly. So if you – and there's a, a fellow named Michael T. Wright who built a replica of this device, and we'll talk more about him probably in a bit. But it, he, there's a great video that demonstrates him using this machine to show the movement of these different uh, elements. And sometimes you see them moving kind of backward 
compared to other elements. And you think, wow, the gears have to account for that, too. The gears have to be able to do very complex movements of these uh, these these arms that are on these dials in order to reflect what is really happening. And while the model itself uh, does depict a geocentric view of celestial bodies, we can't be sure that the person who built it necessarily ascribed uh, necessarily ascribed to a geocentric philosophy. Oh, that's certainly true because for the device's function, I mean, it, it was a uh, it was functionally geocentric, right? Because it, we're on we're Earth. observing from Earth, exactly. Like the, even if the person who made it actually thought the Earth went around the sun, it would still look the same, yes, pretty much. Because if you're reflecting how the world, how the how the celestial you know, uh, elements look compared to being on the Earth, it makes no sense to make it anything other than geocentric. So uh, the heliocentric theories had been placed ahead of when we think this device was made. So it's possible, we don't know, because uh, there were still people who who ascribed to a geocentric worldview. I, I'd probably um, say that was dominant. Yeah, because because it was similar to what we would see centuries later, where to propose such a thing as a helos, heliocentric rev, uh, view would mean that uh, you might suffer a little bit of a... Let's say you might get ostracized yeah. with extreme prejudice. <laughs> people didn't like hearing that. Yeah. So anyway, you know, it does look like it was going to show you not only the sun and moon's movements, which is already complex enough because they don't move at the same you know rate uh, or, you know, they change positions uh, differently relative to one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, then to throw in the other planets makes that or the planets that the, the Greeks knew about makes it even more complex. So here's the question. Does this count as a computer? I would say absolutely. I does. would say so, too. And I've got a little argument here. Okay. You tell, tell me what you think of sure. it. So um, I'd say the basic definition of a computer, a lot of times it's included that it's electronic. But let's take that part out and sure. say, well, whether or not it's electronic, um, a computer is like an interactive machine that can, and these words often come up, store, retrieve, and process data. That's fair. Um, so it's like input, output, and processing. Right. And storage. I, yeah, I always think of it as something that can uh, can take input, put it through some form of algorithm, meaning a set of rules, mm-hmm. and then give you output on the other side. And it's predictable. It's going to do that the same way. Like, assuming that you put in the same input and you're running it through the same algorithm, mm-hmm. you're always going to get the same output. Okay. So both definitions work very well together. Yeah. I'd say the biggest distinction is that today's computers we think of as being general use. Yes. So you you have hardware that can compute, but you've also got software to boss the hardware around so it can tell it to compute in different ways. Right. So in that way, you can have a single machine allow you to do Excel spreadsheets or play, you know, a first-person shooter game. Right. But obviously, without electronics, this the, this ancient computer doesn't have software. It just has hardware. Or it's like thinking about a computer that can only run one program. Which is not that difficult to imagine. I mean, if you if you think of calculators as a subset of computers, calculators, like your basic calculator, I'm not talking about your super crazy calculators that have apps on them and everything, but your basic calculator does basic calculator functions. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, again, taking that input, putting it through an algorithm, some sort of mathematical process, and you get an output similar to this device. Yeah. So this device, it's like a computer that only has one job. Um, But within that job, I think it's definitely worth saying it's a computer because uh, it stores data. So the relationships between the astronomical pathways are represented by the mechanical math that's done between the teeth and the gears. So like the gear sizes themselves are sort of storing that data. Sure. Um, and then it takes input. You turn the hand crank to mm-hmm. give it the input of the date you want to calculate. And then it gives you output. It's got the dials that reflect the computed values of the of what you're looking for. And even as I have said before, you could do it the other way where you keep turning the dial until you get the configuration you were interested in. And then you look at the date. Yeah. Like, so it works in either sense. And uh Pretty phenomenal. I mean, it's it when you think about how precise you have to be to make sure you get this, and not only that, but just the huge amount of information you have to have at your disposal to even start in the craftsmanship of this thing. Mm-hmm. Because 
the the Greeks had a lot of in, of information about astronomy. Some of it they got from the Babylonians. Mm-hmm. So the Babylonians were known as very much interested in astronomy. The Greeks were as well. And so they had to have had all this observation data that they had, the things that they had observed about the movement of celestial objects in the sky and how those patterns would arise in order for them to plan that out into a mechanical device. And that, to me, is really amazing because you're not talking about, oh, you know, every four weeks this one event happens. No, some of these cycles, like I said, are incredibly long. You had a 19-year cycle. You had a 76-year cycle. You had a 54-year cycle. All of these were were taken into account to explain the movement of celestial objects uh, in various ways, whether it's a solar eclipse or a lunar eclipse or that you get both a lunar and a solar eclipse within a certain amount of time. Uh, not to mention the movement of the other planets. That's a lot of information that you have to have compiled before you ever cut into a sheet of bronze. Uh, yes, it certainly is. And, and even harder is imagining how you would begin to compute that data. When, yeah. I mean, nobody, um, well, actually, this is a good question. Um, had anybody, ever made anything like this before. Obviously, we don't know for sure. Right. Well, we don't have evidence. This is the earliest existing device. In fact, we we don't have any other devices to point to. Uh, and let's be clear, when we're calling it the earliest known computer, that, that doesn't mean we think that there is nothing that like this that could have come before it. Right. It just means the it's the earliest one that we have. Exactly. That we know about. So, and we don't have any others. It's not like there are, you know, 20 other examples of this. In fact, if you want to look at for another object that's as complex as this one, you have to go about 1,500 years further into the early Renaissance and look at the Middle East, China, and Europe for devices that start to uh, equal this level of complexity. Yeah, However, these, uh, th- these historians of uh, mechanical engineering, they say this kind of stuff doesn't show up until late medieval clockwork. Right. It's like the 1300s. Yeah, at, at the earliest. Yeah. So when you take that into account, you think, well... You know, is this is this an anomaly? Is it a one off? Did some mad genius come up with this? But if you if you were to actually carefully examine those gears and we'll talk more about how people have done that over the last decade or so, if you were to very carefully examine them, you would see that they appear to have been made flawlessly. Like there were no mistakes. Uh, You know, a lot of experts have said that if you were to build, say, a clock and it's your first clock, it may be a functional clock, but if you were to look at the clockwork, you might see where there were mistakes that were made and then corrected for later on. There, no, There's no evidence of that in this device, which suggests that whoever built it had done it at least a few times before to perfect the whole process before building another one. Yeah, and combined with the fact that this thing is just so smart yeah. that uh, it suggests it was probably not the only one of its kind. It probably came from a line of similar devices, maybe of advancing complexity. And you might think, well, if this is the case, where the heck is everything else? And, well, some of it could just be lost or destroyed. And also, being made out of uh, bronze means that it's a valuable resource, which occasionally, for other purposes, like, I don't know, war, you would melt down so that you could use it for other stuff. Yeah, I mean, think about it. We're talking about the first and second century BCE in the Hellenistic world. I mean, this is it's it's a time when stuff might have gotten grabbed and taken to another place. Melted uh, down yeah. or just lost, just, yeah. just like just like this one was lost. There's in a lot fact, of stuff going on. If you look at, uh, and we should mention this, uh, Stuff You Missed in History Class, an, oh, a, yeah. a sister podcast, they did an episode on this same topic. Fantastic episode. Highly recommend it. You should definitely go listen to it. Um, but one of the things they pointed out was that if you look at bronze statues from that era, there are very, very few of them. And I think like nine out of ten came from shipwrecks. Because the ones that were left on land, more frequently than not, had been melted down for other purposes. Hmm. So it's it's one of those, you, there was not necessarily a sense of permanency in this time of the world. Okay, so we don't have, like, uh, in terms of archaeology, uh, another device like this from the time. Has anybody ever described a device like this from the time? Uh that's a good question. Do you have any actual information on that? Because well, I, when I was looking for it, I was. Uh, it seemed to me at the time that everyone was absolutely shocked by this device because it didn't seem to have any kind of uh, to, shock, shock to the point where they were wondering if it was perhaps 
a hoax that maybe someone had planted this thing and it was a fake. But but it may be that there are uh, sources I'm unaware of. Do you know any? Well, I think there are ancient descriptions of orreries. Okay. Uh, so those are uh, wouldn't be exactly like this, but uh, sort of ancient models of the movement of the planets. Interesting. So it yeah, and of course we do know that there were philosophers who had described uh, the very motions that this device enacted. That it that you know they were they were just describing it for. Uh, scholarly purposes, and this device would show that in action if you were to move the handle. Well, here's an interesting question: Who built this thing? Yeah, uh, where did it come from? We don't, we don't know. Uh, is the short answer. We have some suspicions. Uh, sometimes the name Archimedes gets thrown around there. Yeah. Um, so one clue is just that. Archimedes, he was around, you know, a century before this, and he was a genius inventor. And uh, or at least we assume so. <laughs> Some of his inventions we cannot actually be certain were ever built, but sure. Yes. Oh, come on. He built a death ray. Just, yeah, okay, just admit fine, it. Fine, fine. He, he built, built a death, death ray. Uh, okay, probably. And a giant Maybe arm. Maybe not. A giant arm that would upset uh, <laughs> besieging ships. I want to believe. I, I understand. Okay, so, uh, well, is that the only evidence that it might have been Archimedes? Well, no. Archimedes, as you might remember, was from, uh, he lived in Syracuse. Yes. In the, which uh, is unfortunate. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, unfortunate for Archimedes. Yes. Uh, he lived in Syracuse. And an interesting fact about the device that we discovered later is that, uh, okay, so the device has inscriptions all over it. Very faint inscriptions. They're hard to read because of all the corrosion from the thousands of years. Yeah. But, uh, what they discovered was, oh, okay, actually we can make out some of these with some of this imaging we're about to talk about uh, yeah. in the next section. And it's uh, in Koine Greek. So that was sort of like Koine Greek was the lingua franca of the uh, Hellenistic world. Mm -hmm. You know, people spoke it all over the place. But the calendar that was represented on here right. reflected the kind of calendar that would be used in the Ionian area, which would include Syracuse. Right. So that that gives at least some... Again, circumstantial evidence that perhaps Archimedes could have been involved in this. Then again, Archimedes probably died too early to have made this particular device. Yeah, due to an overzealous soldier. We know he died in, uh, I think, uh, 212 BCE. Yeah. And the device was made in the Prob second century. Yeah, probably late. sometime between 150 and 100 BCE. So. Right. Uh, so, yeah, that does put some... He, he died too early to have personally made it. Right. Maybe he made an earlier one. Yeah, and that's one idea is that it could have come out of a sort of uh, a Syracuse-based school of Archimedes. Yep. Maybe like. And again, the Island of Rhodes is another example that people have have uh, per presented, saying that they were very much uh, on that island. There was a, a scholarly center that was devoted to astronomy, and that they also had craftsmen who worked in clockwork type devices. So it's possible that it could have originated from that area. Uh, we just we don't know. There's some clues there, but we we don't know for sure. Yeah. Um, another name I just want to mention real quick that gets brought up is uh, Hipparchos, Hipparchos, uh, Hipparchus of uh, of Nicaea. Yep. And uh, he was a Greek astronomer mm -hmm. um, and geographer, and he, he did the maths. Yes. Um, he was a smart guy. Yeah. Uh, trigonometry, right? Yeah. Yeah. He well, he was also. Uh, well, he wasn't Hippocrates, but anyway, he <laughs> he uh, he also was uh, known for describing the movements of the sun and the moon. So, right, and uh, and some indications that uh, it maybe could have had something to do with him, or that uh, the astronomical theories that are reflected in this, including like the uh, movement of the moon, mm -hmm. reflects his thoughts right. about the movement. So of the moon. it may not be that he had a direct hand in it, but that perhaps a student or someone familiar with his work. Uh, took the theory and put it into a a, a physical object. Okay, uh, but I have another theory about who created it. Yeah, I have a feeling I know what you're going to say, <laughs> but hit me with it, buddy. Okay, well, it goes like this. This mechanism is way too advanced to have been built by human beings at the time. Obviously, it was built by A, aliens, B, time traveler, C, transdimensional reptilians. Right, so... um. Or, or sorry, D, um, like a super advanced secret human society that we don't know about, like Atlantis. 
but we do know about them. <laughs> we don't think they exist. All right. So, all right. And Joe, I know you're, you're presenting this as a, in tongue in cheek because you and I share a, a common opinion on this about no. how it's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, I think to, it is nonsense to assume this. Yeah. Uh, for one thing, it, it really, it really says a lot about the cynicism of people when it comes to the creativity of human beings and ingenuity and our ability to process complex thoughts and bring them into reality. You know, yeah. I mean, it's the same argument that, oh, the pyramids, no human could have built those. Actually, thousands of humans built those. <laughs> Tens of thousands of humans built those. Yeah, it's um, it's not like somebody in ancient Greece building a warp drive. I right. mean, it's it's somebody who was building something that was totally available to someone with the technology of the time. All they had to be was really, really smart. Right. Yeah. They, we know that the astronomical knowledge was there. You know, the, the scholarship was there. Uh, we know that the uh, bronze working was there. We know that people, there were craftsmen who Well, could, generally it wasn't as good as this. But. Right. But there were craftsmen who could create incredible works yeah. out of bronze. Uh, um, now, a so lot of those haven't survived because of, again, the fact that people would melt stuff down. But the ones that have survived have shown that there's, you know, there has, there was a level of artistry there. Yeah, it's... I think the bottom line is it's quite exceptional for its time, sure. but it's not unthinkable. No. And so uh, we are discounting the uh, the alien slash time traveler slash reptilian slash whatever. I mean, if it was from aliens, you'd think that, you know, it would uh, reflect a, a little more complete astronomical knowledge. You, and you it might think, be electronic or you something. You would think also it wouldn't be geocentric. Yeah. <laughs> Why though, would as aliens... we talked about it, you know, it's functionally geocentric, even though the person who made it might have been. Right. But why would an alien bother to make something from Earth's perspective? When right. Oh, they, yeah, they could make an orrery from the outside. Right. right. Including the Earth revolving around the sun. Yeah. Uh, I mean, why would they do? Yeah, I don't It doesn't make sense to me. Not so. knowing about planets past Saturn. Right. You know, that well, maybe they just thought those were those were not really high up on the, yeah, the list. Those to go are and crappy visit. planets. Yeah, you don't want to yeah. you don't want to visit those. <laughs> yeah. So I think we can discount the whole alien hypothesis. So uh, we've got more. We want to talk about exactly. We want to we want to cover how it is that we actually know this stuff. But before we get into that, let's take another quick break and thank our sponsor. So like I said earlier, Trunk Club is our sponsor. I never thought I'd be the kind of guy to say, uh, my stylist picked this out for me, but now I'm that guy. And it actually is pretty cool. I mean, the clothing that I have from Trunk Club really is stylish and it looks good on me and people notice. And it's one of those things that I don't know that I would have the patience or the eye for picking it out myself. So it's one of those Really useful services. And uh, like I said, they ship the trunk of clothes to you after you've spoken with a stylist, given an idea of what you like and the sort of thing you're going for. You can actually pick what sort of look you want. And the stylist will go and find clothing that fits you, that fits that look, send it to you. You can try it on, figure out what you want to keep, what you don't want to keep, send everything back that you don't want, keep the stuff you do want. It's just a really cool service. So go to www.trunkclub.com and check that out. All right. So we have discussed what it was. We discussed how it worked. How do we know that it did this thing? I mean, you, you know, you're talking about a giant hunk of corroded bronze. How could you possibly ever figure out what this thing actually did? Yeah, as we already mentioned, people originally did not know. They had no idea what this hunk was capable of. For a century, we really didn't know. We had some people make some guesses occasionally, but for the most part, uh, it wasn't until we were able to use something far more sophisticated than just our own eyeballs to look at it. We had to use x-rays. And with the x-rays, initially, uh, the x-rays showed that there were lots of gears inside this hunk of corroded bronze and that they were connected in some way. But those early x-rays were not perfect, mostly the, due to the fact that you couldn't tell depth with it. So you couldn't see how the gears were connected. It was like a mass of gears, but you weren't sure where where they were in relation to one another. Um, but enter something called 3D X-ray yeah, where computerized you start, tomography. Yeah, you start CT scan, scan. Yeah, scanning it from all different angles using different approaches. Did you did you come across the uh, powerful X-ray machines called Blade Runner? No, I didn't. Yeah, Whoa. yeah. So Blade Runner X-ray machines. All right, they use lots of different X-ray machines throughout the study of this device. As we began to learn that this was far more important from a historical perspective than anyone had uh, had thought. 
leading up to this. I mean, everyone was thinking that these other artifacts were really important, and this other thing was a curiosity. But as we learned more about it, we realized, whoa, this thing is amazing. Uh, well, the the various X-ray devices we use showed more of the relation of all these different gears. So we got to see how they were laid out inside this hunk of corroded bronze. But the Blade Runner <laughs> device, all right, so it, it was an X-ray machine that was designed to look for tiny cracks in turbine blades. That's what the original design of these machines was for. And to tell whether or not you're a replicant. Also to tell whether or not, yeah, it would ask you if a turtle is on its back, what do you do? Why doesn't the mechanism turn the turtle over? Yeah, uh, so anyway, it would look for these tiny, it was designed so that you could detect the tiniest of cracks in turbine blades so that you could do maintenance before a catastrophic failure. They used it to look at this device, the Antikythera device. We, I keep avoiding saying it so that I don't fall over myself. Let's say it three times together, Jonathan. All right. Antikythera. 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 Okay, so the Antikythera. Oh, God, it's a demon. <laughs> it's this Greek demon. Kind right, of. Uh, that's fantastic. All right, now you have to say it backwards. No. Um, so the Antikythera device, the Blade Runner thing, it, it looks at it, and it actually is able to see because it has such... Uh, precise measurements, it's able to, to, to distinguish what the tiny shallow carvings are on those dials. That's how we were able to read the words. Oh, the inscriptions. The inscriptions, yeah, okay. because some of them were just very faded already, even before you talk about the corrosion e- effort in there, or element in there, I should say. And the Blade Runner x-rays were able to measure these very tiny changes in the surface of these different dials, and that's how we were able to see what the writing was, and thus able to really... um uh, translate it and figure out what this thing actually did. And that's how people, once they started reading it, once they started being able to read the, the writing, it became clear that this was a far more sophisticated device than what, what predecessors were thinking. Now, even the earliest guesses were things that uh, probably can predict solar and lunar movements, or maybe it's some form of calendar, but it, it, no one was really aware of how sophisticated it was until we were able to take this closer look. And I think it's pretty phenomenal what we've learned about it so far. Like those shallow engravings have told us pretty much everything we need to know about its basic function. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's how we're able to draw some conclusions, including the conclusions that led Michael T. Wright to build his replica of the the device to the point where uh, he's got a working replica uh, it, it, uh, as far as we can tell, it's, uh, as accurate, uh, to the, uh, original as we can possibly get. Uh, yeah, you should look this up on YouTube and see it because it's not just a model. I mean, it is a working replica. Yeah. He, he, he built the machine. He, he used very similar methods as to what the ancient Greeks would have. He used the same sort of dimension of gears. Uh, you know, keeping in mind that we don't, he's working from an incomplete model, even mm-hmm. with our very, very sophisticated techniques these days. You can't see what's not there, right? There's still some missing pieces that we don't really have. You know, he was able to recreate it based upon what we think the device was meant to do and his works. Yeah. And, and it, the videos are amazing. When you watch the, just the minute movements of each of these pieces in relation to one another and think of how complex this is, it's mind blowing. It's well, and it's also it's a it's a gorgeous device. Yeah, you know, it's just it's a beautiful device. You would look at it, and you might think originally, if you were just to glance at it, you might think it was either a really weird clock or maybe some sort of navigational equipment for like a ship or something, just because you've got bronze and wood there. But um, yeah, once you get uh, a deeper understanding of what it is, it's pretty pretty nifty. I think the the replica was made with uh, brass instead of bronze. I think you're right. I think yeah. it was brass instead of bronze. So yeah, even more <laughs> ship like than with uh, the brass and and wood uh, combination. Yeah, uh, there's recent scholarship going on with a project called the Antikythera Mechanism Research Project. Yep, that's a collaborative project between lots of different uh, research organizations and individuals. Uh, yeah, there's a mathematician named Tony Freeth. And uh, he's uh, been using uh, imaging technology to uh, get to the bottom of questions that remain about the mechanism. Yeah, uh, they the the group, the research group was founded in 2005 and has been extremely active. Yeah. Uh, they have sponsored several museum exhibitions throughout the world. I think right now, as of the recording of this podcast, 
uh, at least some of the device is on display in uh, in a, a museum in Athens. Uh, but I believe that ends in January 2014. Yeah, it's the uh, it's an exhibition called the Antikythera Shipwreck, the ship, the treasures and the mechanism. And it's at the National Archaeological Museum in Athens, Greece. Yep, And so that, of course, has more than than the device itself. It also has examples of the other stuff that was found in that shipwreck, mm-hmm. uh, which, by the way, people have gone back to that shipwreck and, and found more things around it since that initial 1900 discovery. Um and so there's there there's also been a lot of uh, symposia that they've held. Uh, they've had a lot of gatherings where they they combine research and they publish that research. There's lots of information on their website about the device and the circumstances around its discovery and just the process of discovery as we used more and more sophisticated uh, techniques to examine it. And it's really a great. Resource. I highly recommend visiting that website. I'll link to that on our Facebook page and Twitter handle uh, so you guys can see it because it's pretty neat stuff. I mean, it's, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I really enjoyed reading about the process they went through uh, as they would learn more and more. And, of course, that hasn't finished. In fact, there's there's one thing, one question besides who built it that we don't know the answer to yet, which is why did they build it? Like, mm. why is it? Was it what what was the in purpose was it a, a scholarly tool was it so that they could uh create you know specifically plan out events to coincide with celestial events so that perhaps it was a political tool you know maybe yeah. if uh, if an eclipse is seen as a bad omen you may want to avoid planning some big event around an eclipse just so that people don't think that the event itself is cursed. I mean, it's... It, oh, I'm sure in the ancient world, you could probably get some amount of power just by being able to accurately predict eclipses. Yeah, yeah, and that's another possibility. It could just be religious power or political power. We don't know. And it's possible that as much as we can learn about this device, maybe we never really figure out with any degree of certainty who built it or why it was built. In fact, I'd be amazed if we ever are able to figure out who built it. That would be phenomenal to me. Uh, unless someone's like, oh, look here, there's an inscription on the bottom. <laughs> Johan from Sweden. What? That would that'd be a big upset. Yeah. <laughs> like, but I, not that I think that would ever happen. But um, yeah, I, I, mean, I, it was, I want to float another possibility. Okay. Steampunks. Yeah, all right. Yeah. So Steampunk it's, cosplayers it's, built go, this. Yeah. But I'm thinking that it was a steampunk convention. A certain doctor showed up at it, accidentally <laughs> ended up grabbing this device, and on a further adventure, maybe three episodes down the line, ended up accidentally dunking it into the ocean out off the coast of Greece. That's exactly yeah. what happened. Um, explains everything. Uh, did you see the the Lego? Oh, I device? did. Now, uh, really cool. Now, this wasn't. We probably might not want to call it a replica, right? Because it's not trying to copy the form of the original, just the function, right? And even the function, it was, I think, a limited part of it because it was really showing things like eclipses in the uh, in the the Lego version. I don't think it necessarily showed all the movements that the uh, Antikythera device showed because uh, I was when I watched the video, I was like, this is really clever because it would show you the the date and uh, when the, the next eclipse would occur, whether it was solar or lunar or both. But uh, it didn't, um, uh, both as in like the, a region of time when both would occur, not both occurring at the same time <laughs> um, necessarily. Uh, but the, uh, the, it didn't tell you things, it didn't tell you things like the movement of the planets, as far as I could tell. So it was, it, it had a limited set of functions that the Antikythera device actually did. But um, it was still really cool to watch. Oh, it was really cool. Let me tell you, I'm going to invent a device, and it's going to tell you, it'll predict when the sun passes in front of the moon. That'll be a bad day. <laughs> I'm going to make sure I stay indoors that day. What What is that called? That's called like a... <laughs> I, think that's, uh, I think that's called... Uh, Oh, well, it doesn't really matter because we're not satanic here anymore. Eclipse. <laughs> that's, it's essentially called, uh, boy, it sure is vaporized outside today, isn't it? Uh, yeah, no, that would not, not go over well. We have a little bit more to say in that classic episode of the Antikythera Mechanism, but first let's take another quick break. 
Now, when we recorded this episode, the belief was that the device dates from around 150 to 100 BCE. But researchers now believe that it's actually even older, dating from 205 BCE. Now, the researchers came to this conclusion once they determined that the Antikythera mechanism was time to begin with events starting in 205 BCE, and not just the year. They figured out that the whole device worked best if we use May 12th, 205 BCE, as the starting date. That's the first full moon of May, by the way. Now, the researchers, Christiane C. Carman and James Evans, used a system that looked at different possible starting dates, and they eliminated the ones that didn't seem to fit the mechanism's operation. The date of May 12, 205 BCE was the one that was left out. So why is this new information so cool? Well, for one thing, it tells us that the person who designed the mechanism wasn't relying on Greek trigonometry, which didn't exist in 205 BCE. Instead, this brilliant inventor was using Babylonian arithmetic to determine the dates of various celestial events. Now, it also puts the device's creation closer to the time of Archimedes, who, remember, died in 212 BCE. Now, I felt all this information was really interesting and merited a revisit to our Antikythera device. I hope you enjoyed that classic episode. I told you I would have a little bit of an update, and I do. So researchers at University College London's Antikythera research team have, well, they believe that they have created a replica, a computer simulation replica of the gearworks of the Antikythera mechanism. They studied the mechanism, the surviving parts, uh, thoroughly. They looked at what we believe it was supposed to be able to do, and then they kind of reverse engineered that to determine the sort of gears that would have been necessary in order to accomplish what this device was supposed to do. And that has resulted in this computer simulation model of it. It's really fascinating stuff. And if they are correct with their hypotheses, it really points out not just how ingenious the engineers were to create such a thing, but obviously how accurate the observations had to be in order for this to even be a starting point in the first place. Keeping in mind, the accuracy of those observations were also hinged upon the incorrect belief that the Earth was the center of the solar system. So that does <laughs> that does change things a little bit, I would argue, but really a fascinating development. And if you're interested, you can go and seek out the reports from the University College London's Antikythera research team. Uh, they have written about it extensively. There are uh, a lot of pieces about the cosmos uh, according to the ancient Greeks that uh, really gives us some insight into the thought process at the time. So I, I highly recommend you check that out. I will have that second part of the General Motors founding up very soon. I apologize for its delay. If it had not been for some unfortunate internet outages in my neighborhood, I would have had that up already. Uh, but such is the way of things. And, uh, and while I know a lot of stuff, I do not magically have an encyclopedic knowledge of everything that happened in the early 1900s with General Motors. I, I just haven't filled out that part of my brain yet, but we're getting there. If you have any suggestions for topics I should tackle in future episodes of Tech Stuff, reach out to me and let me know. The best way to do that is over on Twitter. The handle is TechStuffHSW, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 